everyone to this multi-part 1001 Heroes special presentation titled Amelia Earhart, The Truth at Last. The title is very appropriate in a number of ways. First, The Truth at Last is the title to a book authored by Mike Campbell, which occupies the number one position among 1,500 plus Earhart books at Amazon.com. And second, it's the largest known compilation of the actual evidence from over 200 reliable witness testimonies and 50 years of laborious fact-finding that supports how Amelia Earhart and her co-pilot and navigator Fred Noonan survived crash-landing her Electra 10E at Bar Reef on Mili Atoll in the Marshall Islands on July 2, 1937, were soon picked up along with their plane, then were given medical treatment aboard the Japanese survey ship the Koshu, then taken by the Japanese military to their Marshall Islands base at nearby Jollywood Island, then flown to Kwajalein, and finally Saipan, where they were imprisoned and died as captives of the Japanese. Our government knew almost immediately what had happened and chose to stay silent. And they are still silent. A few weeks ago, I provided an episode that was intended to summarize for you all that's being talked about with regard to Earhart. Today, you get part one of the unvarnished truth, much of which you've purposely never been treated to from the government and entertainment media complex. Why is the disappearance of Amelia Earhart still being discussed? And why is something that happened 81 years ago still important? And how does that involve you, the listener, you might be asking? There are a number of good answers to those questions, and those answers will unfold to you in the process of this show, namely, that Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan were heroes and deserved the truth. They were asked to perform an intelligence-gathering mission for the United States, and they did so, knowing that the risk of getting caught could be death. The files of the final chapter of their lives, kept secret by the U.S. and Japan for so long, need to be opened officially. Earhart and Noonan were and are the first known American casualties of Japanese aggression in the Pacific, which was aimed toward the attack on Pearl Harbor, which was to follow four years after their disappearance. They deserve medals and recognition, and most of all, the truth so that their families and millions of people who still care can have some closure. The Earhart disappearance and subsequent cover-up done in the name of political expediency should be important to you, because it's perhaps the prime example of the type of closed power our government is capable of, and illustrates that even in a free country such as ours, certain non-strategic information is kept secret in order to protect political blunders and overreach and campaigns of disinformation are used by our intelligence sectors to obstruct investigations and blur public distortion on an ongoing basis. The American people who know the facts are clamoring for justice and transparency. FDR's legacy will not be destroyed. Earhart's fame will not be tarnished. All this will become much clearer as we go forward. And to answer the question, why is this still being discussed? Because you have been wrongly informed. Many of you have now figured out how and why. You no longer have to sift through 50 different explanations, all of which bear no witnesses and no proof 
here, today, is the definitive proof. It's time for the truth at last. All of our fans know where I stand on Earhart's final chapter, which is stated above. I contacted author and researcher Mike Campbell, who I believe is the foremost authority on Earhart and Noonan's tragic story, and who, in addition to his books, maintains a blog packed and constantly updated with research information, which serves as a Bible for anyone seeking information on this story. The link to his blog at airhearttruth.wordpress.com is in the show notes for you. Mike is not only the foremost authority on Earhart's disappearance, as you will see as we go forward, he is doing what he can to honor Earhart and Noonan's sacrifice with a grassroots movement in Saipan to erect an Amelia Earhart Memorial Monument, which remains a daunting task in a country still trying to emerge from the decades-long brutal Japanese occupation that threatened beheadings to those who spoke to outsiders, especially Americans. Mike responded to my initial inquiry with this letter. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to tell your listeners the truth about the disappearance of Amelia Earhart, which is not a mystery, as it's been portrayed for 78 years, but is perhaps the longest-running cover-up in American history. 90 minutes should be long enough to give your listeners a good idea about the true history of the Earhart matter. But I've found there's never enough time to cover all the hundreds of important threads that make up the tapestry here. Far from the false dogmas that the establishment perpetuates on an unsuspecting public, that the Japanese capture theory is without merit and reserved only for the fringe nuts of the conspiracy theory. This is the truth, beyond any reasonable doubt, and is without the slightest doubt not a theory. From the top of our interview, this should be made perfectly clear to the listener, that I abhor and reject the very use of the word theory when we discuss the facts about the flyers in the Marshalls and Saipan. And so will any rational, objective individual who reads Truth at Last without bias or listens to this podcast. Once listeners understand the nature of the evidence we have to support the truth, they will easily understand why the establishment's use of the word theory to describe the overwhelming and undeniable truth in the Earhart case is simply a reflection of its aversion to this truth and its determination that it never become accepted by the general public. Once we begin, we should get past the necessary background and bio stuff rather quickly, as this information can be found anywhere in the 2,300-plus biographies and other related books that an Amazon search produces, including the many novels that have been produced about this remarkable woman, perhaps the greatest of the 20th century. But only a handful of legitimate books have been written that present the truth about her disappearance, an incredible statistic on its face, and one that should tell you how off-limits and verboten the truth in the Earhart matter actually has been for eight decades. It's only because this story is a sacred cow within our government media establishment that the mission of telling the unhappy story of Amelia's tragic fate has fallen to the few unknown, obscure people such as Thomas E. Devine, Victor V. Loomis, Oliver Nags, Donald Cothera, via Joe Davidson's book Amelia Earhart Returns from Saipan, Bill Primack, 
Dave Horner, Fred Gurner, and myself to tell it to the American public. Fred Gurner's 1966 book, The Search for Amelia Earhart, sold 400,000 copies and remains the only bestseller about Amelia's loss. Gurner's book caught our elites off guard, and before they could put the plug back in, his book became a classic. Since then, all others have been suppressed and ignored by the mainstream, as has the truth at last. The establishment has marked this story verboten, and all but the most determined dare not embrace it. It truly is a unique example of the vast-reaching success of the American propaganda machine working without cease since 1937. Welcome to the world of the Earhart disappearance, John. You won't find another story remotely like it. Warm regards, Mike Campbell. Mike, it's great to have you with us today, and thank you for the decades you've given to honor Earhart and Noonan's career and sacrifice through your work, and for what you are actively trying to accomplish on Saipan now with a regard to a memorial to the first American casualties of the Japanese war in the Pacific. John, thanks so much. What a, what a fine introduction that was. That's the, the probably, uh, not probably, without a doubt, the best introduction I've ever had because you covered so many important things right off the bat that, that um, the listener really needs to understand from the top. And these are things that um, basic principles uh, about the Earhart story that the listener the average listener, the, the listener that doesn't have the background that you do or that, that has actually gone and searched out and tried to find uh, the truth, which is laying in plain sight in about eight books out of, out of over a thousand, you said 1,500 uh, books, or there's only been actually eight books that I can actually identify that, that offer aspects of the truth about the Earhart disappearance out of 1,500 books, okay? Um, this by itself, as, as you said it in your introduction, this in itself should be a shocking statistic to anybody that can, that can evaluate the, uh, any, any uh, historical event that, that, that has drawn so much attention. To have just eight books even go near the subject is a shocking thing because when you think about other other controversial stories, I'm not going to go into any detail in any of them, but hundreds of books have been written about the uh, the, the JFK uh, assassination. Literally hundreds of probably thousands, because I don't I don't have the number, but there's many books that give you uh, aspects of the truth about his murder, and it's been discussed ad infinitum by so many people. This story, the Earhart story. Is, is unlike the JFK story for some reason, which we will, we, 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 we've already touched on. No one will touch. No reputable journalist since Fred Gurner in 1960, no one has touched this story, has gone anywhere near it, or written about it. No one. I mean, I'm talking no one. Only the, uh, the most obscure people that were personally involved in the story itself have gone near this story. John, it's, there's no, there's no, it's like I said, it's like you, you, as you read the introduction, there's nothing, there's nothing like it. Well, Mike, let's, let's start where we need to start. And that's by you giving us a little bit about yourself and your background and then telling us how you became interested in the Earhart story. So it all goes together. I got involved in 1988. 
I was working, believe it or not, for the Navy as a writer for the Navy. I was working for an organization called the Navy Internal Relations Activity. I wrote stories that went out to the Navy, the Navy ships and shore stations, as well as Marines worldwide about Navy policy. I also wrote features for the Navy. And these stories were seen by everyone in the Navy and the Marine Corps. One day I was asked to write an overview story about Amelia Earhart in 1988. I didn't know anything. So I went out, I read four books. One of them was Thomas Devine's book, uh, I Witnessed the Amelia Earhart Incident. I read these books and from the first minute, it seemed I was instantly hooked. I mean, there was something about the doing the research on these books that just pulled me right in. And, and uh, I, I contacted Thomas Devine. Tom, and we'll get to his, to his uh, experience on Saipan. Uh, I, I contacted him. I wrote him a letter. He responded back to me, and we, we got along from the beginning. He started to share his information with me, and that's, that's how it happened. Thomas Devine was the key person in my life. Tom, since we're speaking about it, there is no true linear way for us to really approach, John, this this. Uh, podcast this audio presentation about the Earhart thing which it's a conversation you and I will have and we'll talk about and we'll and we'll bring out as much as we can we'll highlight the major things as time permits the major witnesses and uh, and the different aspects of the story but it's really to educate the listener enough to spark their interest enough so that they will they will get the book and look into it and I and I'll, right now, from the top, I will issue my, my blanket guarantee. Anyone that buys my book and is dissatisfied with it, I will send them a personal check covering the original cost of the book. Okay? Uh, that's how much I believe in this book. Very fair. Well, you and I are going to grab this thing by the throat in these next two episodes. And by the time we're done, there isn't going to be anyone who has any questions remaining that they can't go out and try and search themselves. But we're going to outline exactly what did happen to Earhart and Noonan. And the most interesting thing, I think, about what we're doing today, the truth always comes out in the end. I don't care how long you have to wait, but it always comes out in the end. We're going to go over 200 witness accounts um, in the course of our conversation here. And if you deny all but one, you're agreeing with the fact, is the best way I can say it. You would have to discount, like the Navy has, the reports of over 200 witnesses spanning a period of over 30 years. And that's awfully hard to do once you hear the truth. And that's what's going to make this podcast unique, is we're going to put the truth out there and give people a lot of it. We have a ton of very knowledgeable people out there in our podcast audience worldwide. I can only tell you that they're going to be very, very interested in hearing what we have to say, what you have to say today. (laughs) <laughs> We're going to go over the major witnesses. We're going to talk about the major witnesses and what they said. The best but, place to start, can you give our young listeners a briefing? It doesn't have to be long, but a two-paragraph briefing on Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan's accomplishments and why she still matters today. It doesn't have to be a long form, but... Right, I know. I mean, most people under uh, most people under the age of 60 or maybe 55, I don't know, it's hard to generalize, but most people have no idea about uh, her, have no concept of her, except what they've seen in the media and what they've been told uh, in the media. And the biographical facts of her are available in hundreds of books, and over a thousand books. And 
quite simply, she was the she was called the first lady of flight. She at between 1930 and 1935, she set eight women's speed and distance aviation records in a ver in a variety of aircraft, including the Kinner Airster, Lockheed Vega, and Pitcairn Pitcairn Auto Gyro. She flew from Honolulu to Oakland. Uh, that was she was the first person to do that slow, solo. She was the first person to fly solo from Los Angeles to Mexico City, uh, 13 hours tw uh, 23 minutes. She, she flew from Mexico City to New York, Newark, New Jersey. She flew nonstop coast to coast at women's uh, nonstop uh, transcontinental speed flying records. Uh, she she was not the only female aviator of her era. There were other well-known uh, female aviators, Ruth Nichols was one, Jackie Cochran another, uh, several. But Amelia Earhart, when she crossed, when she became only the second person in history to fly, solo fly the Atlantic in May 1932, that was when she separated herself from everyone. She became Lady Lindy because she became the second person after Charles Lindbergh to fly across the Atlantic Ocean by herself, okay? Her flight was an incredible flight. Um, she landed in a cow pasture in Ireland because she was forced down with a, with a plane that was in really bad shape. She was running out of gas. Her uh, manifold was on fire. Uh, she, she flew in an open cockpit without a radio across the Atlantic in ice, rain, sleet, and you name it. Okay, The plane even went upside down at one time. To read the story of her flight, I mean... I mean, is it is it courage or is it or is it just being crazy? I mean, she was so she had absolutely no fear at all. I mean, the way the way that she described it when she landed, somebody said, "What? Uh, where have you been? Or who are you? And where are you coming from?" And she said, "I'm coming from America." I mean, so it just goes on and on. All these uh, things about her biography, though, John, you know, they can be found in any book. So I, I agree. She was she was probably, I would say, she was in the top few of female American heroes of the 20th century. And she was an inspiration to millions of young women. No question about that. I mean, there's absolutely no question. And to me, you know, she was the greatest because I've spent 32 years trying to establish uh, what happened to her and to establish the truth because nobody else will do it. There's just nobody else out there. It's fallen to me to do this. There are a few re researchers around the world still that are that are that are doing work, okay? But uh, they don't have a blog like me. I mean, my blog alone, I have over half a million words, John. Uh, that that's in addition to to the book itself. It's a it's a bible of information for anybody searching Earhart information. You have a fantastic blog. It's obvious you spent years putting that together, and you continue to update it. Uh, almost daily. It, it's quite well, an amazing I, piece of work. Thank you. I do. I do work on it very hard. Uh, and let's get started then. Let's get started with the basic facts, okay? The basic facts is that the modern-day search for Amelia Earhart did not begin with the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery in 1989 when they made national and international headlines with their claims about the Navigator's bookcase. The Actual search for Amelia Earhart began, of course, in 1937 when she went missing on July 2nd in her in our uh, and she in the Itasca after she was in the air for 
uh, 20 hours and, and 43 minutes. She, she gave a task or her last message. We're in line uh, uh, 157, 337. We're running north and south, wait, listening. Uh, she began on June 2nd. She was three-quarters of the way around the world, at least, by the time she got to Lay New Guinea, stopping here, there, and everywhere. And, and, her, and she had stopped at Lay New Guinea and, and rested a few days, refueled. There was some weather things going on. And she was re ready to go in the most difficult part of her trip, was from Lay New Guinea to Howland Island, which is 2,556 miles over, over uh, open ocean. Had never been The flight, flight had never been done before. She had radio capability by then in 1937. She was in the state of, in the state of the art aircraft, the Lockheed Electra, um, had a 4,000 mile range in normal conditions, and she, her, her trip was 2556, as we said. She had the best navigator in the world, Fred Noonan, with her. He was uh, just the best there was that could that she could have had to help her. She was not known as a great navigator, of course. But, but Noonan was the brains, and he was the one that was going to find Howland Island for them, and they were going to land at Howland, and then they were going to go from Howland to uh, Hawaii and back to Oakland, and that was going to complete the trip. Of course, she never made it to Howland. After 20 minutes and 43 seconds, she signed, she uh, gave her last message, okay, and that was it. From then on, the Atasco uh, began there. Uh, the Atasco was the Coast Guard cutter at Howland Island that was waiting for her to talk her in during their flight uh during the flight there was never two-way uh communications established between atasca and Earhart's plane never atasca would send her message messages she would send them messages there was never a, a, a point where they went back and forth and they had actually uh established the communication so the, the it was a nightmare the radio thing was a nightmare she was never on the air longer than uh nine or ten seconds she acted as if she did not want them to find her she acted very strangely her radio uh, behavior was completely bizarre during the entire flight uh this is this is uh, you know obviously given rise to many uh, uh, theories now we can talk about theories in the big picture we know she wound up on saipan and that's where she died but within the flight and within leading up to her arrival on Saipan, we don't know all the exact things that happened. And one of the things that we don't understand is, is her radio behavior. That's never been explained. Okay. So she went off the air at 2043. It was 843 AM, Halland Island time. And we think that she landed roughly at Millie Atoll, 850 miles northwest, northwest of Howland at roughly 12.30 in the afternoon, maybe 1 o'clock, maybe somewhere four to five hours after she went off the air. There was enough time for her to, find, to get there because, remember, we don't know where she was when she, when she uh, gave them the last message. Leo Bellarts, the uh, chief on the Itasca, thought that she was very close because she was coming in very strong. He actually ran up on the deck and thought she was going to be coming in uh, for a, la a landing, but he didn't see her. And... She could have been a lot farther away than he thought she was, regardless of the strength of her signal. Okay, the whole radio thing is just a nightmare of communication gone wrong. So much, there were so many different misunderstandings. 
the Tasca was not informed about certain things about about her. She didn't inform. They didn't inform her about when they were going to be calling her on the half hour. She thought it was the hour. It goes on and on. Okay, there's just no point in getting involved with that. Just trying to talk about it gets me bogged down. No, that's a, okay? that's a great point, and I'm going to interject for just a second to say that this is just the way that we want this to be. Our job here is for our detectives out there, and we have many, to we're going to establish a witness trail that leads from the moment, almost the moment that her plane went down to prison in Saipan. And our job is not to get in the weeds with a lot of people who have written and spoken expressing different ideas about her situation with gas, about her situation with radio, about her, her actual flight direction. Our job isn't to prove or disprove any of that. Our job here is to go with witness testimonies that will unfailingly tell us the truth and lead us to her final destination. So I just wanted yeah, to make John, that point here. That's right. You know, you're right. I'm glad. Thanks for reminding me because I try when I, once I get started on any thread. I have this habit of trying to be as thorough as possible, and I that's just not possible in a limited time like we have. Yeah, and, I, and know, we're not trying to avoid anything either. What we're going right. to we're, we're going to do right. is tell the true story as we know it, and we're not going to get into the weeds, as you said. We don't have to. Uh, yeah, obviously, well, when you're trying to tell a story, it comes up in the back of your mind. Well, I know this person's going to say that. I know that person's going to be say that. Well, that's what's kept this whole thing so diffused over the past well, thirty the years. Yeah, we're we're going to get it told here. And the details of all of this is in my book. The details of all the details yes. are there. Okay, yes. it's it's a very dense book. Yeah, and you anyway. go you go back and forth with all the different ideas and all the different criticisms, and you do answer them fairly and completely uh, in in your blog and in your book. So, Thanks. but right now Thanks, we're setting son. up the actual trail. Right, and, and the real and the modern search for Amelia Earhart really began. Uh, well, they the, in 1937 they spent 37 days or 19 days, uh, 18 or so days. They they stopped. They called the search off on the 19th of July, uh, and uh, the the uh, the aircraft carrier was there. The battleship Colorado was there. I mean, they searched 262,000 square miles. Nothing, nothing at all. But they did not search the Marshall Islands because the Marshall Islands were Japanese territory ceded to them by the League of Nations in 1923 or 1920. And um, the Japanese would not allow the Americans to come into the Marshall Islands to search. OK, and that is important. And that is fact. At the same time, I'd like you to explain what the mission was, uh, her relationship with FDR and what the uh, geopolitical situation was in the Pacific with regard to uh, the United States and Japan. Well, that's a that's a big chunk right there, John. Try try uh, three paragraphs. <laughs> well, yeah, the geopolitical situation was not good. The, J right. Japan was building up in the in the Pacific, and they they were very well aware of of Earhart's flight. Okay, they were also uh, superior to us radio-wise. They could track her flight just as well as we could, just as well as the Atasca could. The modern-day search for Earhart started with Paul Brienne Jr.'s book, Daughter of the Sky, in 1960. Okay, at the end of Paul Brienne's book, Paul Brienne was a an Air Force Academy English professor who was writing a garden variety book about Earhart, just a, a biography, when when all of a sudden, apparently, along the way, this new information dropped into his lap 
from a Navy, a former Navy uh, dentist who had worked on Saipan. His name was Dr. Casimir Sheft, and he somehow he knew uh, Briand, told Briand about a story that he had been told by a woman, a, a young girl on Saipan. She was about 16 or 17 when she was working for Casimir Sheft as a dental assistant. This dental assistant told Dr. Casimir Sheft about the landing of a white woman and white man at Tanapag Harbor in the summer of 1937. She was 12 years old at the time. Okay, This story that um, Josephine Blanco told Casimir Sheft got to Paul Briand, who made it the last chapter of his book. Okay, This is where the real modern search started for Amelia Earhart. Okay? Very few people knew about this book. Okay, it was a biography, and the contents of the book in the last chapter was so controversial, and even at, in that day, it was suppressed. Okay, but I want to read just briefly. I know the, 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 the uh, your listeners and no one likes to be read to, but some things are important that you get it word for word. Okay, no, it's perfectly this fine. Is, Go ahead. This is word for word what Paul Briand said in, at the end of his book. Daughter of the Sky, 1960, okay? In the summer of 1937, Josephine was riding her bicycle toward Tanapag Harbor. She was taking her Japanese brother-in-law, J.Y. Matsumoto, his lunch, and was hurrying along because it was nearly 12 o'clock. Josephine had a special pass to the Japanese military area near the harbor. Not even Japanese civilians were admitted to the area unless they carried the proper credentials. The young girl rode up to the gate, stopped her bicycle, and presented her pass. The guard allowed her into the restricted area. On the way to meet her brother-in-law, Josephine heard an airplane flying overhead. She looked up and saw a silver two-engine plane. The plane seemed to be in trouble, for it came down low, headed out into the harbor, and belly landed on the water. It was not until she met her brother-in-law that Josephine discovered whom it was that had crash-landed in the harbor. The American woman, everyone was saying, greatly excited, come and see the American woman. Josephine and her brother-in-law joined the knot of people who gathered to watch. She saw the American woman standing next to a tall man wearing a short-sleeved sports shirt and was surprised because the woman was not dressed as a woman usually dressed. Instead of a dress, the American woman wore a man's shirt and trousers. Instead of, a long, instead of long hair, she wore her hair cut short like a man. The faces of the man and woman were white and drawn as if they were sick, unquote. Briant added that Josephine identified photos of Earhart and Noon as absolutely being the same pair she saw on Saipan in 1937. Fred Gurner, a KCBS radio newsman in San Diego, in San Francisco, saw this, of course, was, was alerted about this, and also saw these stories that were began, beginning to be run by Linwood Day. Linwood Day of the San Mateo Times began running stories because Josephine Blanco was now Josephine Blanco Akiyama, and he, she was living in San Mateo, California. So Linwood Day is really one of the unsung heroes of the whole Earhart saga who you never hear. You hardly ever even hear about Gurner either, but especially Linwood Day who did all this all this initial legwork on the story, okay? Once Fred Gurner found out about Day's work, he went and he interviewed Josephine. And he believed Josephine's story. He, t he, t he talked to Josephine's husband, Maximo Akiyama. 
Shortly thereafter, in June of 1960, Fred Gurner flew to Saipan to follow up on Josephine's story. In June of 1960, this is the first of four of Fred Gurner's trips to Saipan between 1960 and 1963. In 1966, his book was written. Gurner brought millions of people into the Earhart story with that book, In Search of Amelia Earhart. Yes. I really like to credit him with being the real spark that got things started Absolutely. with regard to that. Absolutely. Now, this is the, this is the point. Now, once he, once he was on Saipan, he interviewed he interviewed 200 people on Saipan during his first trip there. Okay, now these are all potential eyewitnesses or witnesses to Earhart's uh, uh, arrival there in, in 1937. Of those 200 people, uh, he found 13, 13 that corroborated her story. Now, remember, there weren't there, they weren't even supposed to be in that area unless they had special uh, passes. It was a secure area. Very few actual Saipanese actually saw the arrival of Amelia Earhart. Now, many of them after that heard about it. Some saw her in different ways, shapes, and forms. Uh, during the next four years, three years, Gurner was able to find many witnesses. But he, in, the, in his first trip, he found what he called the original 13 witnesses. Okay, so you've made the connection between how you discovered the story through Divine and through Gurner. What we need to do now is back up to her crash landing the plane on Bar Reef at Melee Atoll. And who saw it? What we know? And then help us proceed on. On Millie, the, most of the information that we have about her Millie landing comes from Victor v, Vincent V. Loomis's book, Amelia Earhart, The Final Story. Vincent V. Loomis was a former Air Force uh, pilot who thought that he found uh, he, that he had seen the Electra crash somewhere in the Marshall Islands. He returned there in the, in the 80s and he interviewed. Witnesses. He didn't find any airplane, of course, but he he found some important witnesses. The most important eyewitness to the Marshall Islands aspect of this is a guy named Bill Billamon Amaron. He did not see the plane land, did not see their arrival. Their arrival was seen by apparently three people, made possibly only two. The, Loomis talked to a woman named Mrs. Clements, who lived on Bar Island. Bar Island was, vers was almost, uh, from what I understand, almost no one lived there. But she lived there during that time. She said that she saw this, this silver two-engine plane uh, crash land on the, uh, in the uh, ocean side, I believe. She said, that she, I'm not sure that she said it was the ocean side, but she said she saw it land in the water off of Bar Island. Okay? Then we have the two natives. Her name was Mrs. Uh, Clement. Right, it, no first name. Right, Lim, uh, Loomis did not get a first name. Okay, he was not that good of an interviewer. Then he talked to the uh, several natives. By the time Loomis got there, the story was well known among the natives. However, as far as actual eyewitnesses, there was only one person who claimed to be an eyewitness, and that was a guy that his name was Leon Lehon L I J O N, and he was dead. Okay, his friend Gerara was who who said he was with him or near with him near at the time that it happened. Basically, told the same story about the silver plane landing and the two Americans, white people, getting out of the plane and inflating 
uh, and getting into a rubber boat or yellow boat which grew. What else could a yellow boat which grew be but an inflatable life raft? They actually were witnessed getting into their inflatable life raft off of uh, Amelia Toll. Okay? Uh, Loomis got these stories from the natives in the, in the uh, mid-80s when he was on uh, in the Marshalls. Okay? These stories, are, of course, are a bit sketchy. They don't know. They didn't know who Amelia Earhart was. Billamon Amaron is the best witness in the Marshall Islands. He is the cornerstone of the Marshall Islands theory because in 1937, he was at Jalawit. He was called out to a ship that we think is the, was the Koshu, which was a Japanese survey ship. He was, he was a six, Billamon was a 16-year-old hospital corpsman. He worked for the Japanese. He was not actually in the Japanese Navy, but he was a hospital corpsman. He was called out to the ship and actually treated the white man who had a white bandage around his head and also treated his knee with something with something that uh, he called panoply, P-A-N-A-P-L-Y, a strange substance that's not familiar to me and no one else that I've ever known. But that's what he said. That's what he told many researchers. Can I add some color to that account? I've got it right here in front of me. Would you mind if I did Go that? Ahead. Yeah, sure. You have it. Go ahead and read it if you want. Yeah, this was his actual statement as written down by Primac. Okay. In July Bill of 19... Bill Primac was, was a great, was a great Earhart researcher who recently passed away. One of the last. This is Billamon Amaron. In July of 1937, I was residing on Jaluit, he said, site of major Japanese naval base, working as a 16-year-old medical corpsman for a naval hospital. One day at mid-morning, Japanese Navy tender ship comes to harbor and the chief naval doctor takes me on board the ship. Crew and officers were in naval uniforms. Sitting in deck chair was American woman, and sitting on hatch cover was thin American man with wounds. Japanese doctor determined that American man's wounds were not too serious, so he let me tend the wounds. Slight cut over eye and deep infected cut over knee. I treat knee wound with paraplay, just like you said. Lady looked to be in good health and need no treatment. Americans seemed not to be held prisoners, and crew was in total awe that woman would fly airplane, unheard of, in Japan. I speak no English, so could not talk to Americans. Japanese officer tell me that Americans fly airplane from Leh, New Guinea, try to reach Howland Island, get lost, fly into big storm, try to make Gilbert Islands, get blown away, and land in water in Mealy. Ship find them with plane in water and rescue them. Japanese officer then take me rear of ship and show me their airplane silver, two motors with left wing broken. Airplane still in sling on back of ship. I know Japanese airplanes. This airplane was new to me, not Japanese. This airplane on back of ship, very shiny like silver, Propellers had only two blades. Crew called Lady Milia. Milia. She dressed in dark skirt, white blouse, and kerchief around neck. American man, blue eyes, thin mustache, skinny. Both very tired, but in good health. Japanese officer, tell me, ship go to Saipan. You're giving me a rest. <laughs> good. I've also got the statement uh, that Loomis got out from the two fishermen, if you'd like to hear that. On Ijoa Island, 
Loomis sought out Jororo Alabar and Anibar Ean, hoping to confirm the story he heard from Ralph Middle on Majuro. According to Middle, two Marshallese fishermen, Jororo and Lijan, claimed that sometime before the war they saw an airplane land on the reef near Bar Island, about 200 feet offshore. This was the statement. When two men emerged from the machine, they produced a yellow boat which grew, climbed aboard it, and paddled for shore. Jororo and Lijan, only teenagers, were frightened, crouching in the Tiriki, the dense undergrowth, not quite knowing what to do. Shortly after the men reached the island, the fishermen saw them bury a silver container. Soon the Japanese arrived and started to question the two flyers, one of whom was taller than the other. During the questioning, the soldiers began to slap the flyers. Middle told Loomis, and when one screamed, they realized then that it was a woman. The two natives stayed hidden as they watched this bizarre incident because, quote, they knew the Japanese would have killed them for what they'd witnessed. As we say, the native description of a yellow boat which grew is especially compelling uh, because, it's, because of its realism. It, it reflects uh, how a, an unsophisticated, prim, uh, really primitive uh, native in 1937 would describe such, an, uh, such a phenomenon as somebody getting into a life raft. So uh, there you have it. That's, that is one of the imp important witness testimonies in the marshals. And the silver case, or the silver whatever it was that was buried, was later recovered by Oliver Nags in 1981. Uh, Oliver Nags, who went to, uh, to the marshals with Loomis during one of Loomis's four trips there. Oliver Nags was a South African who was a, was a uh, filmmaker and a, uh, and a producer who did not get along with Nags, which is beside the point, but that's why he went off on his own and actually searched this out. He actually located uh, the, what, what we think was the, the silver case that, that was buried by Noonan. The silver case was uh, pretty in very bad shape, but he did take it back to South Africa, and it was uh, analyzed, and it was analyzed as having, uh, it said, the, the microstructures are consistent with the fine clean, low-carbon steel, indicating that good technology was used in its manufacture. Uh, it, it could have come from something akin to a cash box and could therefore have easily been the canister to which Lehan had referred. I want to I bring up one more important witness testimony from the Marshall Islands, and that of, that of John Heine, who was a lawyer, a school principal, and minister of the local Christian church there, on Majuro, and he had told Buddy Brennan in 1983 that he had just entered the Japanese high school at Emiij, which is the Japanese seaplane base on Jaluit, uh, when he and his schoolmates were ordered to go down to the harbor and wave little Japanese flags as a ship came into the harbor. And he couldn't, re we couldn't recall the name of the ship, but he said it was towing a barge, and on that barge was an airplane. He said it was partially covered, but I could tell it was silver-colored, it was smaller than and did not resemble the Japanese seaplanes that we were familiar with. He said it was the plane an American lady had been flying when she crashed. Now, uh, Heine was beheaded by the Japanese in 1944. So they... Uh, no, it was his parents that were beheaded. Oh, it was? Okay. Yeah, his parents were, his, his parents were missionaries. 
John Heine talked to his the, the, their son John Heine actually talked to Buddy Brennan in 1983. Okay, so it was it was the, their missions missionary parents that were beheaded by the Japanese in, on on Wit. Okay, so this is uh, yeah, this is this is another very important piece of information. However, we it's it's not definitive, you know. Uh, it's yeah, it's it's just we're not we're not sure that the plane was her plane. Um, although he did say that it was. I mean, he told Brennan that it was. Uh, he didn't say that he saw the. It, if he, you know, if he would have said things like, "Well, I saw NR one six zero twenty on on one of the wings," that would that would have really helped a lot more. You know, that would have been very helpful. But then but, people I mean, would still say it's hearsay. We well, in, in the course of the next couple hours, we're going to load a bunch of circumstantial evidence that is out there, and it's and it's interviews with people who are separated by a distance of two thousand miles, different civilizations, different people. Who are all going to pretty much testify to seeing Earhart and Noonan? If it was, if it's not them, they saw. Then they saw their lookalikes. That's and, right. And, that, and, and although none that, of this can be absolutely proven, when you take all of this together, there's not a whole lot of doubt left. And that's the whole purpose of this show. Uh, this particular, these particular episodes, is to establish what these interviews were, who they spoke with, what these people said, and actually what all this leads to. Well, here's the thing, John. When you add, when you consider all the testimony from the Marshall Islands, from Saipan, we haven't even touched on the GI's uh, eyewitnesses from 1944 during the invasion of Saipan. That's coming next. Uh, yeah, and, and and when you when you add all that and you look at all that, and then you look at all the things that have happened since then, there there has been so much found so many uh so much evidence so many other witnesses new witnesses and uh, from all different walks of life since Gurner's book was published in 1966 there is a there is a, a virtual mountain of evidence that we that you and i were not even going to touch on during our limited time here okay and then when you consider these so-called theories okay the crashed and sank theory which was the first, which was basically the Navy Coast Guard report from 1937 that got very old by the late 80s. And then you consider Nicomarara, which was what they, which, what the establishment dragged in to replace it and to keep the American public distracted. When you look at those two theories, there's not one single solitary sliver of evidence that connects to Earhart and Noonan. Nothing. Nothing from Nicomararo has ever been connected to them, regardless of what the people who read the 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 blogs and read the, the and look at the TV and the documentaries and all the propaganda. All of it will lead the the unknowing, the unwary, to think that there's actually been something found on Nicomararo. No, there has not been one single artifact that's ever been connected to them. Okay, that is correct. when you get. When you get through all the smoke and mirrors, it's nothing but lies. If, all the, of if it. the Office of Naval Intelligence was put on trial to prove that Amelia and Fred crashed into the ocean on July 2nd, what proof would they have to offer to back that up? They would have nothing. <laughs> They've got nothing. They've got nothing. Other than, other than, again, it's circumstantial evidence based on the last transmissions they received from her. That's it. That's right. But they have no proof. They don't have an oil slick. They don't have a part. They don't have a sunken plane. They don't have anything. And yet you look at all this that's, that's going to be presented, and it's just, it's a mountain 
of information. I wanted to ask you about the her diary found on Namur. Is that uh, is that a le- legitimate account? Okay. Okay. Now the finding of her diary that this was reported to Fred Gerner and it's in Fred Gerner's book, Fred Gerner's 1990 uh, 1966 book has the report of um, I think the uh, W B Hudson was his name. He, he was a, a Marine who was on uh, Roy Namur. In 1944. Where is Roy it's, Namur? Quaj, it's on Lane. It's yeah, part okay. of Lane. Kwajalein is two islands, Roy and Namur, okay. I think. That's how it goes. Yeah. During the invasion of Lane in 1944, January, Marines, a, a couple of Marines found a diary. It said 10-year diary of Amelia Earhart. It was in a room that was fitted up for a woman, the way it was described to W.B. Hudson. W.B. Hudson told Gurner about this, and it found its way into Gurner's book. There's a lot of evidence, okay, post-1937 that puts them in the Marshall Islands based on other witnesses, such as Mara Phillip, who actually said that she cooked for her on on Roy Namor. She actually cooked food for Amelia while she was being kept on Roy Namor by the Japanese, a woman named Mara Phillip. Uh, Mara Phillip. Her account came much later during the, uh, the uh, let me think, in the 90s, I believe, uh, she told an American on Roy Namor who was, wor- who was working at the uh, Army facility at Kwajalein got this uh, information from her. Uh, I don't have the, the Marifil. Let me see. Who else? There was another one. This was a man that was six years old who t- he told an American uh, on Kwajalein, an American teacher from the University of Maryland, Maryland. His name was Neil Proctor. He was on Kwajalein, and this witness said he was six years old and saw the white woman on a ship in the harbor at Kwajalein in 1937. Okay. John Tabecki. His name was John Tabecki. Okay. John Tabecki. And his his uh, account uh, from a six-year-old is pretty good from a six-year-old to, uh, to remember that well. And it's, it's in the book. It's in Truth at Last, in detail to do. But that's just more information. Mara Phillip and John Tabecki. Jane Toma was the first reporter on Kwajalein to report the woman, uh, Mara Phillips account, yeah. And then later on, John Tabecki came and got with uh, Neil Proctor. Very convincing uh, witness, eyewitness testimony that saw the white woman on Kwajalein. I wanted to talk to you, uh, if you could tell our listeners a little bit about when she, when they crash-landed her plane on Bar Reef. It wasn't a matter of the Japanese immediately finding them. She and Fred were trying to get transmissions out so people could... Put a lock on their location. Tell yeah. me, tell me what yeah. you can about those transmissions. How, who has documented them, and what, and who caught them? Well, I've documented them pretty well in my book. I, okay. agree, I agree with that. But they're, but there's certainly not all of them. There was, there was allegedly more than the, the, many more than I have in my book. These are called the post-loss, the alleged post-loss transmissions. There were many transmissions allegedly heard. Wake Island in the Pacific. Uh, there was a, a couple other islands in the Pacific that that that, that uh, got transmissions. These transmissions were heard by people on the West Coast. Uh, people, uh, there was a lot of lot made out of these things. Um, a guy named uh, Matt, uh, Mac 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 McNamee and uh, Pearson were made headlines 
1937 on the West Coast with their alleged receptions of, of these transmissions from uh, from uh, the, the, the Magnumani said that he, well, he actually knew her, had worked with her uh, on one of her former flights and said it was her, her voice that he heard. And these transmissions were heard, they were even heard in uh, Wyoming, uh, another famous bunch of receptions in Wyoming. They were written down by the people that received them, okay? But we don't know who sent them for sure. There's no way to know, and there's no possible way that she could have sent all of them. The uh, the, the Lockheed was not uh, the Lockheed battery had to be constantly charged, and then which meant that the air player, uh, the uh, propeller had to be constantly turning in order to send. Okay, if that propeller was not uh, turning, then she could not send. From her uh, from her radio, and she, and it was and it would have run down very quickly, and she wouldn't have been able to send longer than a day or than than an an hour even. Okay, and so and so we not we're not sure exactly about these post loss transmissions. I can say that they might there might have been a few that were actually her. It's very possible. It's very possible. We but we. It, it's really, it's just kind of leads you around in circles and it kind of makes, it's kind of a dead end too because it doesn't really take you anywhere. You're still in the Marshall Islands. That's where we know she came down. We have the witnesses that, 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 that cement that, that confirm that she came down. We don't need radio transmissions to prove that because if we did, we'd be in trouble. Okay, that, yeah. there'd be a lot more skeptic, skepticism yeah. about it. Good point. It's interesting, and it's and I have a, a whole chapter in it, in, of it in my book about the about the post loss radio messages, or not a I don't think a whole chapter, a sub chapter. It's I cover it, and and it, and it is worth it's 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 fascinating reading. There's no question about that. So, is there anything that uh, we missed so far in the Marshalls before we head for Saipan? Is there any? Well, yeah, sure. Uh, There's some like major. Bring, let's cover it now, so we can okay. so we can uh, complete that leg well the big one is one of the biggest things is that that is the landing the crash landing of Earhart and noonan in the marshall islands on july 2nd 1937 is not considered to be any sort of a mystery or even a question by the people in the marshall islands by the marshallese themselves in 1987 they issued four stamps four postage stamps to, commemor to commemorate the 50th landing of Earhart and Noonan at Millie Atoll. Okay, so they absolutely honor and and uh, confirm the fact of their Millie Atoll landing by those postage stamps in the Marshall Islands. See, the Marshall Islands are an independent republic, unlike Saipan, which is a territory of the United States, okay? Once you get into this story and you start to look and understand these things, you see how political everything becomes. And the Marshallese do not answer to the United States government about what they w want to uh, honor historically and what they don't want to honor historically. Therefore, they went ahead and did their own thing in 1987, and anyone that's interested could get those four uh, stamps, which uh, commemorate the landing of the Flyers at Millie Atoll. That's the big. That's the big one. Uh, the biggest thing. The uh, there's other things too. I mean, there's other witnesses. Uh, not eyewitnesses, but people that know very much about it and that have told. Like when Primack went there and he he interviewed different people. 
Bill Primax uh, did a lot of work in the Marsh uh, Marshall Islands. And it's it, it's the biggest chapter in my book, actually. It's the, it's, the, it's the most it's the longest. The Marshall Islands witnesses. Uh, not that there's more witnesses than there is on Saipan, but for some reason, uh, everything that goes attendant to the story of the Marshall Islands, it just came out to a longer chapter. It's very long, and so all these different people are aware and knew about. Earhart's landing in the Marshall Islands. Tell our listeners about the finding of a plane part that looked like a, possibly the inner disc of a uh, of a of a of a wheel or a brake. Okay. Well, okay. Now that's a mo- that's a recent thing. That's very very recent. Now that's back in uh, beginning in uh, around 2005. Dick Spink, who was a researcher from Bo Washington, has made. Uh, I think he began in 2005, but he started. He, but he's made at least five trips. Uh, or possibly even more, to Bar, uh, Bar Island. He's gone over that area, not only Bar Island, but uh, there's two or three very tiny islands that are adjacent to Bar Island that are close enough to be involved with all this, okay, where the plane may have been at one time or another after it, was, after it crash-landed, okay? Dick Spink has found different artifacts not only on Bar Island, but on the, these small islands called the Endrican Islands, these little artifacts that he's found. Nothing that he's found can absolutely be tied to the Electra. It can only be stated that it could have come from the Electra. One of those things is a dust cover, which is in uh, the, uh, that was in a, a wheel that would cover the wheel of an Electra, a dust cover for a wheel. Is That's, that's Exhibit 1, really, of all the things that, that uh, Spink found during his different trips there. I mean, this is, and other people besides Spink really are big on this, and they really say that it does absolutely confirm that uh, it was the Electra that that the uh, part came from. Uh, Spink himself does not claim that. He says it could well have been, we can't definitively say. Okay, so he's a little more honest than other people want to be. But because of that, Spink was actually featured on the History Channel show in 2017, with his with his findings, they spent a lot of time in the Marshall Islands at Bar with Spink and uh, Les Kenny, two researchers, another researcher, talking about where they think the plane came in, how they think the plane was dealt with. They think the plane was taken by the Japanese, put on tracks, put on tracks, and and rolled across uh, the island. And they found the, the casters for one of those tracks, right? Yeah. Yes, they found that. Yeah, they found the tra- the. Uh, what what did, what did you call them? I call them casters, as in like an office chair has caster type wheels beneath it. I might be using right. the wrong description. Yeah. Yeah. They found those, and and, and that's the theory that that did, they did that. It's all very interesting. Let's talk about the uh, the small headline that ran in a Japanese newspaper a couple days after Amelia and Fred disappeared that said that the Japanese fishermen had found them and picked them up. That's a really uh, incredible thing that I I wouldn't have even thought of because, yes, Tokyo, a Tokyo newspaper called The Advertiser actually ran a headline, and it was actually picked up by a few American papers in 1937. I have a clip from from there uh, that was taken from this. Tokyo hears Jap 
fishing boat picked up Amelia. This headline came from the Bethlehem, a Bethlehem newspaper, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and it reads like this. This is Tokyo. It was July 13th, okay? So this is 11 days after they went missing, 11 days. This is, this is what was picked up, okay, from the to Tokyo newspaper. Vague and unconfirmed rumors that Amelia Aaron and Fred Newman, Noonan had been rescued by a Japanese fishing boat without a radio and therefore unable to make any report found no verification here today, but plunged Tokyo into a fever of excitement. The Navy Department had no official word of any such rescue. It was striving to ascertain the position of the fishing boat rumored to have effected the rescue. Tokyo newspapers had a virtual field day. Stories speculating about the rumors were given a tremendous play, competing with developments in North China, etc. Okay? Now, huh, you talk about this story. As, as soon as this story appeared on July 13th, that Tokyo newspaper, it was pulled. It was immediately pulled for the obvious political reasons that the Japanese did not want anybody to know that they had Amelia Earhart, okay? And this almost became an international incident. And uh, Vincent V. Loomis talks about it in his book. He's the first one to talk about it. Loomis did a lot of very important work. It's in his book, and, and Loomis gets great credit for his Tokyo research for proving that the Japanese lied about what, they're, what they were doing during the 1937 search as far as what the Koshi was doing and what the Kamoi was doing. They said the Kamoi was doing this, the search in the Marshall Islands when, in fact, the Kamoi was nowhere near the Marshall Islands, neither were the, or any of the ships that were supposed to be with the Kamoi. The Koshu was, they didn't tell us about the Koshu. The Koshu was the one that was involved with the flyers. The Japanese got rid of that headline, and I have not, no one that I know of, no researcher that I know of, and I think I know them all, has ever found a, a original Okay, an original copy of the Japan Advertiser newspaper from Tokyo of 1937, July 13. Uh, and I can add a little color to that story, too, if you'll allow me. Uh, this, sure. This might be from Loomis's book. It might be from your blog. I'm not sure. But here, here it reads. Amy Otis Earhart, Amelia's mother, told the Los Angeles Times in a July 1949 interview, quote, I am sure there was a government mission involved in the flight because Amelia explained there were some things she could not tell me. I am equally sure she did not make a forced landing in the sea. She landed on a tiny atoll, one of many in that general area of the Pacific, and was picked up by a Japanese fishing boat that took her to the Marshall Islands under Japanese control. And then the author continues, Mrs. Earhart didn't disclose her source for the fishing boat story to the unnamed Times reporter. But writing in May 1944 to Nita Snook Southern, Amelia's first flight instructor, Amy Otis Earhart told an amazing story that began with a reference to Ilyu's account to Eugene Bogan via Ajima. Quote, it, meaning Bogan's story, does happen to fit in with information brought me by a friend a few days after Amelia's SOS, who was listening to a former schoolmate's shortwave radio when a broadcast from Tokyo came in, saying they were celebrating there with parades because of Amelia's rescue or pickup by a Japanese fisherman, Mrs. Earhart wrote. That was before the war, you know, and evidently the ordinary Japanese had no knowledge of their military leader's plans 
so were proud of the rescue and expected the world to be. That young girl drove 27 miles at 11 o'clock at night and through a horrid part of Los Angeles just to tell me. Absolutely. That's that's a very good antidote. Very good. It's And uh, Amy was... Amy knew a lot, and we're not sure exactly how she knew these things. Uh, some of the things that we that she knows, we do know how she knew them. As I say in my book, uh, Amy also made some questionable, sta- uh, questionable statements to the uh, L.A. Times, fanciful claims that couldn't have originated with uh, Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, Mrs. Earhart's insistence that she knew Amelia was permitted to broadcast to Washington from the marshals, and Amelia's voice was recognized and the radio broadcast from the marshals to the U.S. Capitol appeared to be untenable. A shortwave radio transmission powerful enough to, le- to reach Washington from the Marshall Islands would have been heard by many, including amateur operators who would have reported it. It's possible. Amy could have gotten a lot of the information from Eugene Burns. Eugene Burns wrote a story in 1944. 1944, uh, he reported from Kwajalein about the uh, diary being found. That story that that Burns reported was buried, instantly buried in 1944. But it was done, and it was it was uh, it was published around the country. Eugene Burns' 1944 story, unlike the 1960 story about Josephine that that originated at San Mateo, where we last left off. The San Mateo side of this, that story was completely squelched nationally. The San Mateo Times headline that culminated with Gurner's uh, first, first visit in, in 1960, that it, that it said, Amelia Earhart mystery is solved. San Mateo Times ran, ran that story in 100-point headlines, July 1st, 1960. Okay, So that, was, that story was completely suppressed. Eugene Burns' story in 1944 was not completely suppressed, but it was quickly forgotten. There were other stories... There was another story from Saipan about uh, about something being found, a photo album found on Saipan, which turned out to be a red herring, a, a complete red herring. It, it wasn't really connected to her. So, I've got more on Mrs. Yeah. Earhart's letter, on her mother's letter, that was sent to Bill Primack by a researcher called Art Parchin. And after reading the full transcript of Mrs. Earhart's L.A. Times interview, Parchin concluded that Mrs. Earhart's apparent certainty about her daughter's death, and I'm going to read that in a second, was rooted in her source, Eleanor Roosevelt, who, Parchin among others, believes had a special relationship with Amelia. This was the rest of that letter that her mother wrote. You know, Nita, up to the time the Japs tortured and murdered our brave flyers, I hoped for Amelia's return. Even Pearl Harbor didn't take it all away, though it might have, had I been there as some of my dear friends were, for I thought of them as civilized. There were times when, inside... I was wild with anxiety as I thought what must be happening to her, but gradually quieted myself with the thought that they would be more likely to hold her as a hostage and exchange her for some of their own they wanted. Maybe might let her come home after the war was over, well, and unharmed, just to show they were not the brutes we thought them to be. But when that story came out from our own men who had seen it all with their own eyes, and afterward escaped from their prison camp to tell of it, I thought so no more. So the hope is only the finding out what happened after the Jap fishing boat picked her up from the small island where she had landed. 
That's pretty. That's pretty stunning stuff from Amy. Really, it is. Yeah, that's that's pretty heavy stuff. And um, she wasn't so, making that up. She wrote that two months. But and we're going to get and listeners, we're going to get to Saipan and Aslito Airfield and all the many U.S. Army and Marine witnesses we had there. Amelia's mom wrote this two months before Aslito Airfield in Saipan, so she was getting her first source from somewhere. Yeah, and that's what that's what really I I wonder what she meant and where she, what she was talking about when she said when that story came out from our own men who had seen it with 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 their own eyes and afterward escaped from their prison camp to tell of it. What that's, prison that camp hasn't is been she talked about, about much? And this is a a good time to bring it up. I I thought that. Uh, I don't know of, what prison that, camp she's talking about. That was kind about, of a blaster okay? headline to me too. Just now as I read. Yeah, it. I. No, I just, I just include, I didn't cut it out of the letter, but I mean, I don't know what she means. I really don't know what she's talking about. The, they escaped from their prison camp to tell of it. This is just beyond me. There's nothing, she could be talking about Japanese on Saipan imprisoning someone else that told about it, but um, we don't have the, the, the pieces to put in. That's, that's a make piece that, that hasn't been make, found yet. Yeah, yeah, you know, so... Yeah, uh, it's very, it's fascinating stuff. Uh, and, I mean, a lot of people whose opinions I respect believe that Amy, not in 1944, not in 1944, but later on, Amy and the rest of the family, the rest of the rest of the Earhart family, including George Putnam, her husband. I got a thing about George Putnam, I got to tell you. But some people do believe that Amy was told the whole truth later on. And so was uh, Amy Kleppner. The niece, Amelia's niece, who's one of the, who's who's the closest living relation to her now, Amy Kleppner. She's like in her in her late eighties. GP Putnam and the son before, not by Amelia, but by a, a previous marriage. We're told we're told what happened to her on condition that they not tell anybody and and play stupid for the rest of their lives. This is only a theory, okay? It's a speculation that they were told based on the fact that they didn't make a lot of noise afterward okay you know during and you know especially after Gurner's book was published in 1966 and everybody was screaming about this people were were uh, beating down their congressman's doors in 1966 400,000 copies were sold of his book and people were really up in arms wanting to know the truth this is the height of the of the Earhart uh, frenzy the search frenzy that actually it hit in 1966, and then Time Magazine stepped in with their famous review, the conspiracy, uh, sinister conspiracy review. In those days, there wasn't that many uh, major information sources. You had three networks and a couple major magazines, and Time Magazine was considered the news magazine. Time Magazine wrote a scathing report against. Uh, that just ripped Gurner's book. Yep, they tried to put him in a tin hat. Yep. Right. Nothing to see here. Move along. Okay? It's basically what... I'm not going to read that With now, a little help but, from the ONI, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Okay? So, from that moment on, 1966, the, the truth about Earhart on Saipan was considered for verboten in the media. It was not to be discussed. And if it was, it was to be called... Uh, very nasty words like conspiracy theories, like you know the the province of fringe nuts, um, and and it's it's that way to this day. 
uh, it's considered to be a conspiracy theory only only held by fringe nuts. And this all started in 1966 because up until then, Gurner was getting support from certain uh, aspects of the media, and he wasn't being completely demonized. But after Time Magazine came out, and his after his book came out, it was over for for Gurner. Okay, and, and as far as the media was concerned, he had no, he could make no more traction with the media, and 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 so and it's been it's just been getting worse ever since then. Not better. It's, it's been getting worse. That, that's why it's 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 fallen to such as as me. Such as me to do this story and Thomas Devine prior to me, nineteen eighty-seven. It's amazing stuff. It really is. Well, but we it's barely, all there. Our listeners, I know you've you've had to take in a lot here, but you know what? We've only just scratched the surface on the testimony and accounts regarding Amelia and Fred Noonan's fate. And the next, we're going to take you to Saipan, where, as a result of Fred Gurner's book and others like Fred Gurner. A lot of U.S. servicemen contacted him back, contacted those authors back with their own testimonies of what they'd seen while in Saipan. And you're going to be absolutely amazed if you haven't heard this information yet in terms of what they saw, which included Amelia and Fred Noonan, their internment there at Garapan Jail on Saipan, her being moved to the hotel at the Kobayashi Ryukan, the fact that American military saw her plane at Aslito Airfield right after the, the Japanese were beaten in that part of Saipan when the United States invaded. All kinds of information. We're going to be talking about the, uh, the report that you've probably never seen, the Office of Naval Intelligence report that was written, I think, in 1960, which they finally declassified in 1967, and which pretty much tried to debunk any and all actual witness testimony regarding her and did their best to cover up the story and support the Navy's early response that said that their plane went down off Highland. Crash and sink, no questions asked. You're going to find that that's not the way it happened at all, and we're going to explore all that. And by the time we're done giving you this one-on-one account, you're going to be fully informed on what really did happen to Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan. And that will be part two of this show, 1001 Heroes. And we thanking Mike Campbell for being with us today. And Mike, you've been fantastic. You've been a huge source of information. And I, I have trouble expressing how much we really appreciate and enjoy having you with us for these episodes. My pleasure, John. Thank you so much, man. I really do. I, I really enjoy it. And I, sometimes I get carried away, you know, trying to provide so much information at the same time but uh you know with your help you know we'll muddle through this and we'll try to inform uh your listeners as well as we can with the time that we have and then we'll we'll go from there why don't we cut right here and we'll do part two next next time that sounds great to me so okay uh, man we'll talk to you next week take care of yourself thanks okay thanks john bye 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 hi 1001 fans and new listeners We have an explosive part two coming next week, and I'll give you a summary in a minute. I hope you enjoyed part one of our exclusive interview with leading Earhart author, blogger, and researcher Mike Campbell. Mike believes, as do I, that Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan died in service to America, in service, whether official or not, to our country, as they took on the next-to-last leg of her world trip 
and were captured by the Japanese when they had to ditch their plane on Bar Reef in the Marshall Islands on July 2nd, 1937. And you need to know, this happened just a few days before the Imperial forces of Japan, then already on a war footing, attacked, without provocation, the mainland of China, killing tens of thousands of Chinese in the process of trying to subjugate and conquer Japan's basically helpless, sleeping neighbor to the West, literally raping Nanking that summer of 1937 and gaining access to China's resources and destroying their military. So whatever else you think Japan was doing in 1937, just four years before Pearl Harbor, it's important that you know that their armies and navy were up to their necks in a brutal war of acquisition and that they were quietly and illegally breaking the terms of their Pacific Mandate. They were fortifying islands, building airstrips that our intelligence department desperately wanted to locate and confirm, and they were totally protective of their bases in the Marshall Islands as they set their sights on a future attack on the United States Naval Fleet at Pearl Harbor. When the United States began their search for missing Amelia and Fred, they were not allowed to go near the Marshall Islands. Keep that in mind. According to witnesses, it was in the Marshall Islands that they landed. The hows and the whys can be sorted out in long, hotly contested debates elsewhere. The witness trail is here, and part two is coming up in just a few days. We'll be going to Saipan to collect witness testimonies from many dozens of civilians who were interviewed by Fred Gurner and others, some actual eyewitnesses, others second and third hand. Information as to the presence of Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan on Saipan in Japanese custody in 1937. We will discuss the American military witnesses who saw their plane at Saipan's Aslido Airfield. We'll hear how that plane was rolled out of the hangar and set on fire, burned, and bulldozed, along with other military witness accounts from or about those who dug up their remains, those who found personal effects, and those who discovered pictures of Amelia in captivity on Saipan. We'll look into the Office of Naval Intelligence's classified report of Earhart in Saipan done in 1960, which was later altered, changed with disinformation, and declassified but still kept closeted. We'll look at U.S. government duplicity in not only creating a disinformation campaign, but ignoring hundreds of pleas to declassify Earhart's files. We'll bring to light the statements from Admiral Nimitz and others made privately and publicly regarding the fact that Amelia was taken prisoner by the Japanese. In short, we'll be looking into a cover-up that the United States government has successfully managed for over 80 years, while denying Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan the recognition as heroes that they deserve. 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries is a proud part of 1001 Stories Network and found wherever great podcasts are listened to. We appreciate new subscribers to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, CastBox, Stitcher.com, Player.fm, and many other podcast apps. And we invite you to visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network, where we are now offering bonus programming to our supporters. Check out our new Prime Cuts podcast there and the Best of 1001 podcast there and become a patron supporter of 1001. We would appreciate that greatly, and we are asking for your support. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon.